Good morning, uh, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for joining me on this live stream. I know it's been a while, but uh, unfortunately, I have been a little bit busy with uh, taking care of some things in life, uh, as, as most of you uh, probably are. Um, I want to wish you also Ramadan Kareem. I know that the Eid is coming up. Uh, I hope your uh, you know, fasting uh, went well and you are enjoying this period uh, of time with all of your family and loved ones. Uh, I also want to say uh, I wish you all a blessed Easter. Easter happened last week, but uh, I also hope that uh, you, uh, you were able to enjoy that, uh, that period of time with, uh, with everyone you love. Um, as usual, I want to remind everyone that whatever I share on my live streams are my personal opinions. They have nothing to do with my uh, current or previous employers. And um, I also share uh, stuff from my own experience and things I've read, things I've explored, things I've discovered, and uh, a lot of the insights are coming directly from me. In today's live stream, we're going to be talking about a topic that is also uh, really um, fascinating for me, at least, and uh, that I'm also still exploring myself, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I definitely don't have all the answers. I'm not a researcher. I don't have empirical evidence uh, for what I'm sharing with you. What I'm sharing with you are basically insights. They are personal experiences. They are observations from me having worked in so many different markets, in different companies of different sizes, uh, and with different people. However, that doesn't mean that uh, these uh, insights are generally representative or maybe they represent the entire globe. There might be areas in the, in the world where these things don't apply. There might be scenarios that I haven't personally thought of. There might be situations where, that I haven't been exposed to. So whatever I share with you, take it with a grain of salt. It's an opportunity for you to be curious about these topics. It's an opportunity for you to explore them even further. And what I share with you are pretty much the starting points uh, for a lot of these uh, things, right? So don't consider me an authority at all on any of this. And I would not consider many people also authorities. I would do my own research always, but I consider people's thoughts to be starting points, to be ac accelerators for you know my own learning and exploration journey. So thank you very much again for everyone who joined us on this lovely Saturday. Um, I'm going to make sure that this session is not as lengthy as the other ones, just because I know you want to enjoy the weekend and I don't want to make it too long for you folks. Uh, just a quick reminder that these uh, live streams are recorded and they, are, they will be available on my YouTube channel. This is the link for it, uh, glitch.stream, very easy, glitch without a T. It's my, uh, my way of naming this channel. Don't ask me why. That will be a story for another time. Uh, and I also want to mention that finally I got the, the, the time to uh, launch the podcast. Um, the podcast is nothing but the fireside chats uh, extracted in audio form because I know that a lot of you would like to uh, listen to these sessions as opposed to watch them you know, through video. And YouTube doesn't really make it easy to, to do that unless you have premium and who wants to buy yet another subscription? So my podcast is now available via this link. So you go to glitch.stream slash podcast and you will land on the anchor.fm page. Uh, you can subscribe to my podcast. It's available on pretty much everywhere. Um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts. Uh, and there's an RSS feed if there's some platform that you use that is not uh, listed there. Um, you can just uh, add the RSS feed to your favorite podcast player, and then you will have all of the episodes. I am releasing them uh, gradually until all of them become available, but expect every episode to be there uh, in the upcoming few weeks. 
And with that said, let's get to our topic of the day. So let's start, first of all, by a definition of what is a generalist, right? What is a generalist? What is a specialist? What is a generalist software engineer specifically? So you need to be aware that I'm a little bit biased because I consider myself to be a generalist software engineer, right? And the characteristics of a generalist software engineer are that they have the ability to work across the stack. And you might ask me, okay, great, what is the stack, right? At the end of the day, we are uh, we create recipes, right? We write code that runs on certain machines. Uh, the stack is everything that starts from pretty much the hardware layer all the way up to the abstractions that we see and the output that we see through our peripherals, right? Whatever these peripherals might be, they might be our screens, they might be other devices, they might be other controllers, um, whatever the output is, right? So anything across this layer is, is considered the stack. Now, of course, obviously you cannot be as, uh, an expert in the entire stack that this type of folks, um, maybe they exist. Um, you will have the capacity to understand what's happening on the hardware level, but there will always be a limit to how far you can go in terms of depth, right? So when we say hardware, you might understand computer architecture. Sure, great. Uh, you might understand the CPU architecture. You might understand the, the architecture uh, of, of your you know, motherboard and, and how things work out. You might understand what happens on the bit level. You might understand what happens on the microcontroller level. You might understand what happens on the semiconductor level. You might understand what happens on the quantum level, right? Quantum mechanical level, uh, which is great. But I don't think there are a lot of people who have who have all of the insights about what happens, you know, across the hardware level, and then have the ability to go all the way and be proficient in every single thing. But however, that doesn't mean that you cannot be a generalist. You can have a, a certain level of depth that is deemed acceptable or uh, workable, workable knowledge, right? That's the thing that you need to understand. Workable knowledge is very important. Workable knowledge means that you have enough understanding of a certain topic that you can work with it in the sense that if you need to do a little bit more research, you can. If you want to understand it at a deeper level, you know what you don't know, right? You know that the X exists and then you can start looking deeper into X, right? You know that Y exists and you know the relationship between X and Y, so on and so forth. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, a generalist has the ability to work across the stack. They have a general understanding and a, a lot of breadth in so many different areas. Uh, they they have this sort of uh, perspective across the, the whole chain and they are able to dig deeper. That's the important, the second important part, right? Um, they have the ability to process information and uh, ability to acquire knowledge at a faster pace. Uh, that's not necessarily to say that this is a superpower or anything of that sort, but I personally believe that having the ability to identify signal from the wealth of information out there at a very at a quick rate allows you to be a more performant generalist that doesn't mean that for you to be a generalist you have to be you know an information parsing machine that's not what i'm saying i'm saying you will have an advantage if you have that capacity to process information very quickly and to identify signal from the noise because there's plenty of information out there and you over time by being a good generalist right you will start identifying ways where you can really start finding the signal right away when you process a certain uh, body of information. That body of information could be maybe a scientific paper. It could be a Wikipedia page. It could be some random Google search or whatever other searching engine you use, right? 
having the ability to acquire process information in the, uh, at a very quick pace is very important for you to be an efficient journalist. Um, ability to identify and recognize patterns is the second uh, very relevant and highly important skill that allows journalists to be uh, capable of uh, you know, performing in the sense that um, you don't have to solve every single problem in the world to be able to develop a more generalized understanding of that type of problems. We, we, our human brain is, is wired to identify patterns and we have the great capacity to categorize different problems that we see and that uh, you know, we, we interact with. Uh, if we didn't have that capacity, we would be very uh, less smart, let's put it that way, because then uh, we will not have the uh, ability to um, uh, generalize what we learn in certain area to other, to other areas, right? Uh, we will not have the ability if we solve a certain puzzle in some, in some place to use that information, that knowledge that we acquired, you know, about how we solve this problem in another area. So having the ability to recognize and identify patterns is very essential and important. And this is also a critical skill for journalists, in my opinion, um, which allows us to utilize and leverage solutions from one field in another field. And this is where the power of journalists comes in, right? Next is uh, having the ability to, oh, sorry, this is, the, this is the one I wanted to mention, having the ability to reuse the learnings from one topic and another. This is also a very important skill that I just mentioned. And um, being experts in your own learning capabilities, right? We talked about uh, learning how to learn. We talked about uh, identifying your own capacities and the, your methods of learning. It's very important for journalists to have a very good self-understanding, self-awareness, right? of how you acquire information, how you acquire knowledge. Uh, if you don't know how your brain processes information, then you have a big gap, right? You're not going to be able to assimilate information and identify patterns and acquire knowledge at a very fast pace um, because you don't really know how to optimize which information you need to look at if you don't know how you learn. It's very essential for you to acquire this skill as early as possible if you want to be a performing journalist um, and a performing a journalist software engineer at that, right? Because um, just to give you some perspective on uh, what it means to work across the stack, it means uh, pretty much that let's say you you can you can build a solution end to end, right? You can build you can build the back end component, you can build the infrastructure component, you can build the front end component. And if there's an area that you're not really capable of uh, delivering value immediately at, you have the capacity to acquire working knowledge in that topic, right? For you to get across the finish line. That doesn't mean that what you're ever, whatever you're gonna build in the area where you're lacking is gonna be the most optimal way of doing it. Of course not, because if you can do it at that level, that means you are a specialist. And this brings us to the definition of what is a specialist software engineer. Specialists don't necessarily mean that they know absolutely nothing but one topic. Not at all. Specialists could be also capable of uh, understanding a wide variety of topics. They might have the capacity to also operate across the stack. That's for sure. I don't think there is any software engineer that's just, if, if they know barely the syntax of one language that they are able to work at a professional capacity. Of course, you can get by by working like some, some types of tasks, maybe some bug fixes, but at some point, not having the rest of the knowledge will haunt you. 
uh, you're not going to be able to grow. You're not going to be able to take on more complicated problems. You're not going to be able to tackle different uh, types of challenges. And you're going to be very, very limited in your capabilities, right? I mean, I remember from my early days of uh, starting in this field, and I'm talking when I was a teenager, I didn't really have an, an understanding. Uh, programming was more of, uh, you know, grabbing certain things, putting them together, and just trying to get things to work. Uh, brute forcing uh, solutions is obviously a way to go, right? But it will not get you far and it will take you a really long time to solve problems if you don't have a good understanding. So uh, that's why I say specialists are not necessarily people who don't understand anything but the field that they work in. No, specialists could be also uh, partially generalists, but they have deep technical knowledge in a very specific domain that let's say a smaller number of people have that level of knowledge in, right? Uh, they focus on subtopics. They focus on certain niche. What's the plural of niche? Niches? Maybe. Anyway, <laughs> they focus on certain subtopics and uh, they go really deep into them. And when I say deep, I mean they develop a level of understanding that is not necessarily available and that is not necessarily easily uh, searchable. And what I mean by that is uh, you cannot just Google and search for uh, the knowledge of a specialist. If you have that capacity, that means that that's more probably in the realm of generalization. Now, That's more of public knowledge. Specialists are individuals, in my opinion, again, my opinion, right? There's not a, there's not a global definition. This is my personal definition of what a specialist is and what I consider a specialist. I consider a specialist as someone who has information in their mind or structured in some way that you cannot really find anywhere else. They might have written about it, of course. They might have published things about it. They might have shared that information uh, elsewhere, right, of course. But the understanding, the transformation of information to, to knowledge and the way it's structured in their mind, right, that's not easily, uh, you cannot easily find this anywhere else. And um, this could uh, really um, be across the board. This could be on the hardware level. You have some people who have so much experience in uh, designing um, PCBs, for example, that they are able to really optimize a certain design uh, very quickly and they are able to design uh, efficient PCBs uh, that use less material, that use less connections, that are less prone, that are easily manufacturable, so on and so forth. And I'm, again, I'm not an expert in PCB design, but I'm just you know thinking right now from the top of my head, I'm sharing some examples. Some people might be experts in writing, uh, you know, firmware code. I personally have never written a firmware. Uh, I have never written code for a microcontroller or or a, or a device uh, at that level, right? You have definitely a lot of experts that understand very well how to extract every single, how to milk basically a, a microcontroller and how to write efficient uh, code that is, you know, utilizes the bare minimum resources possible because they are, are operating under heavy, heavy constraints, right? When we're talking about microcontrollers that have, I don't know, like one megabyte, 10 megabyte, and 20, 10 megabyte is a lot nowadays. Like in previous days, 10 megabyte was, was, uh, was considered uh, <laughs> um, uh, impossible even. Uh, so when you have like, let's say 10 megabytes and you want to process an audio, for example, right? How do you do that? Like, how do you process audio from a microphone? How do you record it on a device if you only have 10 megabytes of working memory? That's definitely not an easy task, right? Um, 
and uh, you have to chunk it in a certain way and you have to make sure that you maintain the integrity of the audio that you record on the device so on and so forth. Again, all of this to say that there are uh, specialists who have the knowledge that is not easily searchable and findable uh, outside of their, their minds. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes when someone gets to that level of depth, they have invested so many hours, so much time in getting that level of knowledge, right? They have spent so many days, even uh, thousands of hours uh, building this, 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 these insights that they are generally reluctant or hesitant to switch to other areas of speciality. And this is why I think uh, specialists, um, they, 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 identify a certain comfort zone that they are you know uh, highly capable in and then it becomes very difficult for them to get out and look at the bigger picture i'm not sure whether you know people who prefer to be in that realm um this is how they are wired or this is how they prefer to be or maybe this is the area where they find they can add most value or maybe it's their comfort zone or maybe I don't know, there might be many reasons why people might prefer to be in that domain. Maybe even financially, they are making you know, a, good, a good return on, on all of this experience and level of knowledge. So, um, so yeah, there are many reasons why specialists prefer to stick to their domain. Uh, they might be even, uh, they have some level of prestige maybe, you know, by, by being specialists in these specific areas. And that could happen on so many different levels. That could happen on the academic level. That could happen at, in your work, right? You have uh, people at work who are considered experts in a certain domain and everyone goes to them to ask, how can we do this? How can we do that? Can we pick your brain on, on a certain, on this topic? Can we get your insights? Uh, what do you think if we do this as opposed to that, right? And people, I think, who are in that level and they feel some level of satisfaction, I think, from having people come to them and considering them uh, specialists in, in certain areas that they start having um, the tendencies not to, you know, um, not to explore other domains because they will feel like they are starting over maybe, uh, and this is just me again projecting. Uh, it might not necessarily be how they feel, but this is how I think that specialists, um, um, how I think why specialists behave the way they do, or maybe why they stick to the domains. Now, this is not to say that if you choose a path, you have to stick with it for the rest of your career. Obviously not. Uh, just like I said uh, previously in earlier videos, uh, careers are not linear. They do not go on a, a one line where you have different checkpoints and you have to go through these different checkpoints for you to get to the next level. That's not how it works. Uh, careers can be very messy. They can be very dynamic. They can be very chaotic. They can be, there are so many variables that affect how you progress in your life and your career. So there uh, many different uh, things might make you generalists in certain occasions. And many different variables can push you towards becoming a specialist on uh, in certain topics and certain domains and in certain periods of your life, right? Uh, there is not just one way. I think awareness of what it what it means to be a generalist and what it means to be a specialist allows you to identify in which stage you are and how to capitalize on this uh, mode, let's say, of working that you are in right now, right? All right. I uh, I don't see a lot of interaction in the chat, so I'm assuming uh, 
you probably don't have answers. Let me double check that. Maybe there's some integration problem or something along these lines. So um, having a look at the chat right now, uh, please feel free to drop in your questions. I would love to take on your commentaries, your questions, your insights. Um, all right, I can see a something from Khalid um, over here. Let's put it on screen and let's see. Um, Khalid is saying some people may be afraid of being a junior again if they move from their specialty to a new one. Yes, 100%. Of course, it depends on the company and field. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm happy that you saw that uh, observation as well. I do. I have seen that observation myself uh, with, uh, with some people. Uh, again, they have a tendency of uh, wor or worry, let's say, of being considered uh, junior indeed. But in my opinion and in my experience, that rarely happens, uh, you know, like I'll give you an example of that. I, I joined GitHub and GitHub is a Ruby shop, for example. And I have never written a single line of Ruby before. Does that mean that I cannot be productive? Of course not, because the patterns and the experience that I have throughout my career is pretty much the same. From a system design perspective, that knowledge is not going to disappear because I don't know a little bit of Ruby. And acquiring Ruby, Ruby as a language, for example, is what, a weekend project? And I'm not saying I'm going to become an expert in Ruby, but I having working level experience in Ruby is a weekend's work if you, if you have programmed in similar languages before. Learning about Rails, the framework, is what, maybe a couple of weekends if you've built uh, with similar frameworks before. There obviously are going to be certain quirks and as areas uh, that are you know, require, require a little bit of depth and you probably are not even aware of certain features. And this is where specialists, you know, the role of specialists can come in. But that does, does that mean that you have to be a, a Ruby on Rails specialist for your entire career? I think that holds less value, to be honest, on the long run. So let's jump, after defining what generalists and specialists are, let's jump to contrasting them. And let's talk about the benefits of being in either category, right? So uh, first of all, in my opinion, specialization requires a certain technique, right? And in our domain, uh, even though it's technical domain, we write code, there is a level of technique there, uh, but it's not the same level that you can define by doing more of the same, because the challenges that we tackle are sometimes very different from previous challenges that we tackled in our lives or in our career, right? And let me contrast this with learning an instrument, for example. Learning an instrument or learning a, a sort of a mechanical skill uh, is, is completely different than programming. Uh, and I will tell you why. So learning a guitar or the cello or violin or whatever requires a certain level of technique that is very uh, mechanical that you have to develop over extended periods of time. You cannot pick up a guitar and be able to play anything that sounds okay, within a short period of time. Uh, there needs to be some muscle memory that is developed. There needs to be some technique that is developed. You need to learn how to position your hand in a certain way. You need to train your muscles to flex and uh, extend in a certain way. And um, even if you can hear the music in your head, and even if you have a good understanding of uh, music theory and you're able to identify the notes, and the pitches very quickly, that doesn't mean you're going to be able to play the instrument proficiently uh, at the, from the get-go, right? And this is why specialization in these areas is very important because um, 
you cannot just pick up an instrument and then be uh, and then have working experience and that's the key term right working knowledge working capacity in it in a short period of time unlike coding where i can get someone who has absolutely no clue about coding today and i will bet you that in 48 hours i can teach them enough for them to be able to solve a certain level of problems and this is completely different than acquiring or learning an instrument for example or learning how to golf or learning how to drive a car these are completely the, the other uh, again it's not a matter of complexity it's just a matter of how we acquire this learning how to code requires very little the barrier to entry is very minimal and you don't really need to sit down and practice uh, basic syntax over and over again <laughs> maybe to memorize it sure but like the basic fundamental concepts are are so easy that you can do so much with very little at the beginning right i'm not saying this is not to say that anyone who learns uh some conditionals and some loops and how to uh, uh assign variables and whatnot is a developer right well i mean it really depends on how you want to define a developer they are able to write code they are able to solve problems sure there are levels and degrees of proficiency of course right um but um but they're able to to work so um again technique in our domain is is not is not that fundamental of course with time technique can translate more towards um being able to build better abstractions uh, maybe even um being able to build software that doesn't break as easily software that is more resilient software that is easier to maintain software that is testable but i consider this part to be not necessarily technique it's more you know um experience in a sense and uh, because i can teach a technique like design patterns to someone but that doesn't mean that they're gonna know how to use it effectively and i've seen this so many times people misusing design patterns thinking that just by applying design patterns immediately their code is going to be more readable highly maintainable so on and so forth it's never the case um and that comes with a lot of experience and and doing mistakes and seeing bad patterns. And I also think in this field, we should be able to demonstrate bad patterns a little bit more often than demonstrating how things should be done. Because we'd showcase a lot of the high level stuff saying, yeah, you should write your code this way, but we never explain why and what is the contrast. And why is the other side? Maybe if we show the other side and why it's not necessarily good, it will be much better than showing how it should look like. But this is, again, a topic for another day. Um, software engineering on day-to-day -day has very little to do with writing code, right? And this is something that we all discover throughout our careers and that we don't necessarily always like. And this is something that we get shocked by. And today I have published a post about the a law of diminishing returns, which I'm going to be talking about uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, big news, if you don't know already, software engineering is not about writing code. At some point, writing code will become um, a very regular activity and uh, your companies and your teams will want you to do more of the people management aspect more of the communication aspect more of the architecture and design work as opposed to writing code on a daily basis and this is why being a specialist in software engineering has very limited band and opportunities down the line and this is the next topic i want to talk about which is compensation opportunities 
compensation opportunities are very important. And in my opinion, generalists have a much higher opportunity to be able to find employment at any point in their career if they adopt sort of a generalist mindset. Because first of all, uh, there is a lot of demand. So right now, uh, everyone wants pretty much software engineers. Uh, the coffee shop down the street needs software engineers for whatever reason. <laughs> every, this is to say that every company wants to hire right now, and there is a very high shortage of talent available. And let me very be very clear about this. There's very high shortage of senior talent available. There's a huge abundance of junior engineers. And an abundance of junior engineers is because there are a lot of boot camps that are training people on how to become software developers. Uh, the universities are have wider programs. They are accepting more people. There's a lot of awareness about it. The, the pay is very high and inflated to a point where a lot of people are considering career switches as well. So there is a huge supply of people who don't have a lot of experience, but companies don't necessarily want that category. They want people who have experience because they want to deliver more efficiently. They want to de deliver faster. And the companies who can afford to pay high salaries, they are uh, paying them to acquire senior and experienced talent. Anyway, this is to say that um, generalists have a higher opportunity to find employment. They will be able to always find a job because they don't stick to a specific technology stack, for example. They don't stick to a specific area of the field. And they have the capacity to jump in between areas, whatever, whatever the business and the company they're joining or whatever project they are working on needs. You know, this is again, another keyword, whatever the project or the company or the business needs. And this is where generalists excel traditionally, and this is where they can add more value. Um, again, adding business value is a, is a very critical concept that many software engineers struggle with because software engineers at the beginning of their career, they think that their job is simply to write code that works. Sure, that's, that's part of the job, right? Uh, but why are you writing code? Why are you building whatever you are building? What is the fundamental nature of the business or the company that you have joined? Do they sell your time? Do they, do, are you writing code for customers? Because if they're selling you your time, then you writing more code is pretty much, you know, what, what needs to happen. And then you're adding business value. If they are selling a product, then that means that the product is the business. Selling the product is the business. And then you add business value by creating features, by making the product better by enhancing the product, by fixing bugs, but by making the product more reliable, so on and so forth. So again, a lot of engineers uh, struggle with this concept at the beginning. So it's very important for you to be aware of the business, of your relationship with the business value. And once you understand this relationship, you will realize that generalists have the opportunity to have a higher impact on the business itself. Why? Because they have multiple ways where they can intervene to add business value beyond just writing code. They might be able to write code on different levels. Some people might quit, for example, and then a generalist can come in and pick up the work of certain people in a specific area. Does that mean that they're going to write good code as specialists in that domain are going are gonna to write? Not necessarily. But does that mean that they're going to allow the business to continue and to survive and to move forward? Yes. And that is business value. 
and your relationship with the business value will also determine your compensation level. If you become indispensable for a certain company, they will do whatever they can to retain you and they will do whatever they can to pay you accordingly, right? You don't get a raise at the end of the year just because the performance review time came in. You don't get a raise or a bonus at the end of the year just because you appeared, right? Your salary is supposed to compensate your time, not the bonus or the raise at the end of the year. The bonus or the raise at the end of the year are uh, related to your ability to impact the business and your ability to add business value, right? So again, this is why specialists sometimes struggle with, with being promoted because uh, they think that by being specialists, they are contributing to the business value, while in fact, they might not necessarily be doing so as much as generalist, generalists are able to do that, right? Um, and I'll tell you why. Because let's say we have a, an application that has been, you know, it's being built for a decade, 15 years, 20 years maybe. We have specialists, we have two or three people that know these very specific areas of the code base. And uh, we really cannot, uh, you know, let them go. I had one, I cannot talk a lot about details, but let's just say that I have seen this before, where I have seen companies that have um, very old code bases, like really, really old, where they had literally two or three people who understand certain pieces of that code base. And these people were going on retirement soon. <laughs> Imagine the, that of a, how much of a, of a crisis that is, right? What are you going to do? Are you going to bring back people from retirement? Anyway, obviously, these people are specialists, right? Because they, they understand something that others don't. They have knowledge that you cannot easily search for. They have knowledge that you cannot easily acquire, even if you try to. They have knowledge that needs to be transferred from them to other, other people, right? So these specialists obviously are extremely highly compensated. Obviously, the company cannot risk losing them, so they will keep on paying them whatever is necessary to retain them. The business understands that they are also a liability because their the business continuity depends on these people. And that's not necessarily a situation that the business wants to be in um, because... Um, yeah, you cannot risk losing the entire business just because you have three people understand a certain level of the code base. And that's why you will notice that a lot of businesses will attempt whatever they can to avoid this type of scenarios, but still it happens. And um, again, out of this, these three people are out of a company that employs about four or 5,000 software engineers. So out of the 5,000, you have three people who are specialists and they are highly compensated because of their speciality. So consider that the next time, you know, you want to you wanna venture into a certain area and you want to avoid being sort of a generalist and you want to stick to a very specific narrow niche uh, field, right? Or niche topic. Uh, consider that in terms of compensation. And now, of course, these people, these three specialists, they can pretty much work anywhere, but would they really find the same work um, conditions? Would they really be compensated and valued as much outside of the company, I highly doubt it because the area of their speciality is very, very specific to that company. And I'm pretty sure they're not going to, they're going to struggle to find employment at the same level at the same, you know, for them to maintain even the same lifestyle, maintain even the same compensation, so on and so forth in other places. So being a, speci a specialist obviously pays more if you are part of the lucky bunch. Uh, but on the long run, that's not necessarily a, uh, a good thing for you to be in or a good situation for you to be in because it really limits your options. 
Uh, and obviously, I hate the, the the concept where people say, "Yeah, you cannot be you you can be the jack of all trades, but a master of none." Sorry, but this is bullshit. Um, I believe you can be the jack of all trades and a very proficient um, engineer in many. Uh, I know for a fact that I am just as much capable of building back end solutions as I am able to build front end solutions. Uh, I say this very openly that I'm not a very good mobile developer just because I never invested the time in understanding the technology stack or building for it. Uh, does that mean I cannot build an app? For sure I can. Does that mean this app is going to be the best and top of the line? Highly unlikely because that needs a lot of, I need a lot of experience in that area. But um, still, I am a, I definitely consider myself an expert in, in, a, in a bunch of areas and fields uh, because I invest the time in them and I know a lot about them. So you can definitely be an expert in so many different things and don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Um, as junior engineers, I don't recommend that you spread your wings too much, right? Just pick a handful of topics that immediately, that you can immediately add impact to and try to be, uh, you know, try to learn them. Uh, there's nothing really preventing you from broadening your perspective as soon as you develop certain levels, certain patterns. And as soon as you are able to start to generalize a little bit more. Um, it's important for you to acquire the generous skills that I talked about first before you start acquiring more breadth in different areas and different disciplines. And obviously, the last thing I want to say is that there is, there is no one formula that fits all. Uh, we all have different uh, ambitions in life. We all have different career ambitions. We all have different places we want to get to. We all have different um, things we enjoy doing. Um, some people just don't enjoy spreading themselves across multiple topics. And that's totally fine. If, the, if you choose to, you know, tackle one specific area at a time, that's also a very fine uh, way of approaching your career. Just again, be aware of the trade-offs that you are making if you decide to choose either path. And uh, obviously, as I said, there is really no reason why you cannot switch and why you cannot be an expert in multiple areas, but also a generalist that understands and has a wide breadth. Um, now, let's talk about the law of diminishing returns. I have published a nice visual on my uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, uh, about this. I'm not sure if I can share it on my screen right now. Let me check. Mm. Let me do that over here. All right, cool. So let's share this uh, screen over here. Uh, Chrome doesn't want me to, so it's asking me for permissions. Let me just very quickly do that. I should have tested this before, but it's okay. Anyway, I think you can uh, still see. I think you can still see it on my. Um... Okay, there we go. All right, I hope you can see this. Uh, perfect, yeah, it looks good. So um, what I wanna share with you is the following. Um, 
again, a very simple, very simple graph. It's not necessarily, you know, very, uh, very detailed. But what I, what I, I want to say about it is, let's consider this axis here that to be your technical uh, abilities, your technical skills and whatnot. And let's consider this axis over here to be the business value. Of course, at the beginning of your career, right? This is the slope. Uh, it's it's going quite high. The red line, right? You uh, you're picking up more skills that that allows you to write code more efficiently, faster. You're able to write testable content. You are able to write um, code that performs well in production. You are able to write code that is maintainable. Your colleagues are not complaining about it. They will always complain, but let's just say that you are able to write code that is better. And uh, at some point. Adding more experience, you know, we just start flattening out, and you're not gonna. The more experience you add, it's just gonna gonna add business value. And again, I'm not saying that you're switching jobs in this case. Let's assume that you're staying in the same company. You stayed for three, four, five years, and you're picking up skills as you go. At some point, the work is just gonna become a little bit more of the same, and the software is gonna probably go into maintenance mode. You might be tackling new challenges. You might be tackling new opportunities. That's assuming that the product, for example, that you're building keeps on growing and more work is being added. But obviously, as we know, that products require a certain level of maintenance. And that means that the more technical skills you add, the less business value that you're going to be able to add until you get to a tipping point, right? Beyond which the law of diminishing returns starts to kick in, whereby if you keep on adding more technical skills, uh, your your ability to add business value is gonna actually diminish. Why? Because if you look at the yellow line, your compensation is gonna keep growing with the years, right? It's gonna keep going up, and at some point, uh, your compensation will be too high for the technical uh, output for your technical output, and it will be cheaper for the business, right, to pay someone else uh, to give them something along at this level over here. Right, and that is that gets compensated over here. While you are uh, at this point over here, and you are getting compensated much higher than the other person, or let's say higher than the other person. Right. Again, bottom line is it would be cheaper to hire maybe new talent, talent that has a little bit less years of experience. That's assuming you're not able to, you know, transitioning uh, to another uh, focus area, which is, for example, leading a team. Uh, architecture and design, right? So I'm assuming here that your, your ability, to, you're increasing your technical specialization in like writing code, for example, building more abstractions, so on and so forth. At some point that's gonna add less value. And then you're gonna have to start looking at the bigger picture. You're gonna start have, you're gonna have to start looking at stuff beyond a feature. You're gonna have to look at systems. You're gonna have to look at system design. You're gonna have to look at architecture beyond the small service or the small narrow area where you're working, right? And if you do that, then the law of diminishing returns is not going to kick in because you're taking on more responsibility. You're taking on, you're adding more business value in other forms than just writing code, right? And by doing so, uh, you're going to be able to justify your compensation from a business perspective. And um, obviously, you're going to be able to grow. And that's why you will see that even though companies build technical tracks, right? Uh, even though they build um, um, career ladders for the people in a technical track, uh, these these have also an upper bound. So, and the upper bound that I've seen is some people get to the level of, let's say, principal software engineer, and that will be equal to a level of director or maybe a senior director. But beyond the director, senior director, you might have 
you know, general managers, you might have uh, pre uh, vice presidents, senior vice presidents, um, higher level, C-level executives, so on and so forth. So there is a cap for how far you can go because if you're not really managing a large group of people, then your ability to add value to the business is, is less and less um, impactful from a technical standpoint. Unless, of course, the entire business depends on a very specific niche area. Like some businesses are concerned with, uh, let's say, I don't know, building rockets. It's rocket science. How many, how many rocket scientists can you find across the world? Obviously, a limited number, uh, less than software engineers, right? So the more these rocket scientists can specialize, the more they are able to optimize the vehicles, the more business value they can bring. Obviously, their compensation will be equal to that. And they might be as important as vice presidents in companies or senior vice presidents or even the CEOs or uh, whatever the C-level executives themselves. But that's, again, that's the... Um, exception that's a very narrow area that's not the norm and um, if you can replicate this in your career that's fantastic but what i'm showing you right here is uh, what applies a little bit more generally than uh, what we see in normal uh, yeah what we see in normal software engineers careers i think we have uh, gotten to the um I shared with you everything I wanted to share. Um, I see a few uh, commentaries here uh, and a question from Ahmadou is saying, how do you define depth of knowledge for junior engineers in terms of technologies and stacks? Uh, great. So junior engineers should really focus on, again, as I mentioned, a narrow band at the beginning until you acquire a certain level of depth. Yes. And you mentioned, and you're asking me right now, what is that level of depth? Well, that level of depth, in my opinion, is basically when you are able to write software that uh, is uh, production ready and software that is able to run in production without a lot of unexpected uh, downtime and unexpected problems. Obviously, everyone writes bugs, but the amount of bugs and the severity of the bugs that you write, these will diminish with the more, or these will go down the more experience you will have. So, for example, and again, there are outliers, obviously. Sometimes people write bugs uh, that they could be very, very senior. They could write a bug that would bring down an entire cluster or entire production environment. That's still feasible, but the complexity that they are dealing with is obviously much higher than the complexity of what a junior developer is dealing with, right? So again, there should be a level between the bug impact and the complexity ratio, or the, uh, sorry, bug impact and complexity ratio, right? I think we can, uh, we can definitely determine this. So uh, what I'm trying to say is for junior developers, if you write production-ready code and you are you understand everything that happens, you understand the cycle, let's say you're building web apps, you understand the HTTP uh, uh, flow end-to-end, -end, what happens from the client side all the way to your back-end and how your back-end processes information and pushes it back to the client. And if you're able to really uh, go deep into this and uh, understand it uh, all the way, um, that would be that would be a good amount of uh, knowledge. And then from there, you can start broadening your experience. So instead of just using one backend framework or just building one type of backend services in a certain technology stack, then you can start replicating this experience in other technology stacks, for example. And then from there, you can start broadening your knowledge to learn more about caching, to learn more about infrastructure, to learn about more about, for example, how to write uh, stateless applications and how to build, how to do horizontal scaling 
and how to build applications that um, don't always need to read from the database, for example, for them to be able to perform. And you start learning more about distributed systems and eventual consistencies, so on and so forth, right? Um, so as junior engineers, again, focus on whatever technology stack your, your company, the company that you join uses. At the beginning of your careers, it doesn't matter what technology stack you choose. Pick something and go deep with it. Build as much as you can with it. And when you feel comfortable and when you feel like you understand all the facets of it, and trust me, you will feel it. You will know that there are gaps in your knowledge if you're not lying to yourself, right? Once you are, you feel that you are good enough with that, you can start jumping to other areas and start tackling different uh, topics. Eli Mushri, thank you very much, my friend. I'm very happy to see you uh, to see you join, and uh, and uh, we definitely need to catch up again soon. Thank you very much for your comment and your support. Uh, Khaled is saying again, what is your advice for people moving from a specialist to a generalist mindset? Is there any methodology to follow so that this process won't take a long time? Uh, I love the question. I wish I had an answer from the top of my head. Uh, all I can tell you is you need to be comfortable. You need to try to be comfortable with uh, change. And you need to be, you need to try to be comfortable with uncertainty. You need to try to be comfortable with, um, with not knowing. That's, 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 that's the core aspect of it, right? Uh, not knowing is very important and uh, having the ability to say, I don't know but I can find out. And that's that's the mindset you need to put yourself in. I don't know, but I can find out. And then from there, the first steps are gonna be a little bit more difficult, whereby your searches are not gonna lead too much. You're gonna feel confusion. Uh, but the way I like to look at it is, it's as if you were making like a soup and then the soup will not really just come together until the very end. And you just keep on adding ingredients, but they're not gonna all make sense. But at some point, things are going to click. And when they click, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from that. And this is what being a journalist is. It's like trying to create this soup over and over and over again with different topics until you get to the point where the soup starts to take shape, the texture <laughs> takes, it takes form, and then everything clicks and you feel like, yeah, this is it. I have, I have an understanding of it. And the way I like to measure personally my understanding of a certain topic is, is if I am able to uh, explain it to a uh, person who doesn't have any clue about it and they understand what I'm saying. So explain it like I'm five. Or if I'm able to literally throw a one-hour session like this one, fully improvised. Uh, I have some notes, obviously, but you know all the talking points are fully improvised. If you can do that, then you really know your topic and uh, you're really able to you know, speak uh, uh, at, uh, from, a, from a journalist standpoint. It's not easy. And it requires you to rewire a little bit your brain and um, be in very uncomfortable situations. And it requires a certain level of humility. You have to be humble and you have to, it's gonna feel bad. It's gonna feel painful uh, because I know I've been a specialist in certain areas and being in, in, a, in an uncomfortable zone that feels a little bit off, but also you have to be uh, more quiet as well listen to others who know a little bit more than you do uh, don't jump to conclusions very quickly even if you have your own opinions you don't necessarily have to share them wait be patient until the soup takes form and then you know you can uh, you can be on your way the, your area of speciality obviously is not going to go away and what's going to make you special is you're going to be able to use that area of speciality in the new domains that you 
start playing with. And when you start identifying these, these crossing points of different disciplines, that's going to be really beautiful. That's really what keeps me going. And I love uh, seeing how my uh, different, um, uh, different uh, passions or different or my curiosity and love for different topics, they start coming together in a very nice way. And, uh, and I think that that's what makes a generalist a little bit more special. Obviously, the world needs both. This is not to say that one is more superior than the other, and it's not a competition. The world needs generalists, and the world needs specialists. And I'm going to give you a couple of references for books that you can read to explore this topic a little bit further. Uh, let's see. Rami is saying, uh, Rami Gamal is saying, do you, do you think having a postgraduate um, degree as master's or PhD is crucial for progressing in the career? Absolutely not. Uh, it depends on what career you are pursuing. Right? Obviously, you need a postgrad degree to pursue a career in academia if you want to go do research, if you want to join a research institution, so on and so forth. Uh, you obviously need that level of higher education. If you are going to join the industry where you're going to join, like, I don't know, big tech or uh, companies that are building products or services and whatnot, um, you don't necessarily need that level. Uh, obviously, you can acquire some of the knowledge that these people, these levels have. The problem with, so here, here's the thing. This is, again, a complicated topic, but I, I will address it. So first of all, there's an abundant, abundance of people who have PhDs today. Like before, it was way more difficult. You need to be able to really add a dent in a certain field for you to earn your PhD. I feel like in nowadays, a lot of people are earning their PhDs by contributing very little in a certain, excuse me, in a certain field not as much as previous PhDs used to contribute. Uh, but again, that's not to say that there aren't PhDs that are making major, major uh, contributions, right? So the, in, 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 in the industry, uh, if you have a master's degree, unfortunately, you will be uh, leveled at a lower level. So let's say you are trying to join as a software engineer and you have a PhD. That's not going to hold a lot of value because the skills that a software engineer needs in a company that builds products right, does not require that specialization that the PhD has. It's not about your, your, your prestige. It's not about how much time you invested in your PhD. If your PhD doesn't necessarily apply to the product and it doesn't add business value, you're going to be leveled at a point where at a starting point even. I've seen PhDs start as junior developers in, in companies that are building products just because their PhDs are not necessarily, they don't necessarily add business value, right? So this is a rule of thumb. If your master's degree or whatever, you are able to join a company, for example, in their research department where your work can be multiplied to create new products, for example, then obviously your PhD and degrees will, will matter a lot and you will be compensated um, based on that. Uh, but if, you're, if, you're, if you want to join as a software engineer, your master's degree will not really add a lot of value here, to be honest. And I'm sorry to tell you about this. Uh, but that's the truth. Uh, obviously, there are more companies nowadays that are creating R&D departments. Uh, there are a lot of companies that have research departments. Meta, for example, they have a big R&D uh, uh, department. Uh, Jan LeCun, uh, he heads the uh, machine learning and um, AI uh, department at Meta, for example. And obviously, they hire a lot of PhDs there. And they, the PhDs will definitely be um, of a lot of added value because that's you know, that's how they contribute to the business value, to the business in general. Um, awesome. If there aren't any other uh, questions from anyone, I want to mention a couple of uh, resources. 
So there is a book called Range, and uh, it's by um, David Epstein. Thank you very much, uh, Jamie, uh, my colleague who recommended this book. Uh, she read it recently and she, she recommends it. I'm going to drop it here in the chat so that whoever is interested in this book can actually uh, look it up. Uh, obviously, I'm not, um, I'm, how do you say it? Like, I, I, I have uh, read the book. And uh, let's just say that uh, this is the title of it, Range, Why Journalists Triumph in a, triumph in a specialist, Specialized World. Uh, I've read the book, and it's not necessarily about software engineering per se. It's about journalists and specialists, you know, in general. It talks about Tiger Woods. It talks about, uh, you know, different people in different disciplines and uh, whether their specialization paid off and whether it's better to be a journalist or a specialist. This is obviously a, an opinionated book. Uh, I would still recommend reading it just to get, you know, the um, your your horizons expanded. But I would not really take whatever it says, literally, and I would not really follow it exactly. Just read it as a nice, interesting read and and just something to be curious about. And as I mentioned, there's really not one size fits all. We all have different uh, ambitions in life, and we all want to go different places. Um, I hope that what I shared with you today has added a little bit of value. Uh, and uh, I think I'm going to wrap it up here because um, I have shared whatever I wanted to. And um, I just want to thank you all for your continuous support. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining. I love the interaction and I love, um, you know, uh, just trying to add value to your careers. If there's anything that I have missed, um, I apologize. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for your time. I want to wish you a fantastic weekend. I want to wish you a great uh, rest of the week. And I will speak to you again soon with another awesome topic. And uh, in the meantime, again, my DMs are open. Please feel free to reach out. Feel free to comment. And uh, I want to ask you a small favor. If you like this video, please go to my YouTube channel or my podcast. This is going to be available on both of them. Like, subscribe, follow, share it with someone you think that might benefit from this. And uh, please continue uh, engaging with me. This is the only way that I know that, uh, you know, I'm adding value. And this, is, this keeps me going and encourages me to build more interesting content for you. So I will share the summary of this episode just like I do normally as a mind map across my um, platforms. Uh, you can follow me on all of these. Uh, there's Twitter, uh, GitHub, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever you prefer. I publish on all of them. And until next time, I want to wish you a, um, all the best, and I will see you uh, on the other side. Take care. Bye-bye.